as many as 20% of individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities and about 42% of individuals with autism spectrum disorder engage in self-injurious behavior, or SIB for short. Common forms of SIB include repetitive headbanging, head-hitting, self-biting, self-hitting, eye-poking, skin-picking, and trichotillomania, or hair-pulling, among other forms. Without treatment, these behaviors are likely to persist over years, even decades. Those who research and treat SIB in these groups tend to work in special education. Meanwhile, those who research and treat non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, tend to work in psychiatry or psychology, two separate disciplinary silos with two separate names and two separate acronyms for a common behavior. Just what is the difference between SIB and NSSI? How are they similar? How does treatment for each look? And how can we bridge the gap between NSSI research and clinical practice and SIB in intellectual and developmental disabilities? To answer these questions and to talk about some of the issues with studying and treating SIB and NSSI separately, as well as how to bridge this divide, I am joined today from the University of Minnesota by Caroline Roberts. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply ISSS. Back in March of this year, I received a message on social media asking if I had considered doing an episode on self-injury in people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, or IDD, and how it's studied separately from people without IDD. And then in June at our IISSS conference in Vienna, someone presented on this very topic, and it was received with a lot of enthusiasm. I was like, I know this person. She had also messaged me about participating in her research where she was interviewing groups of experts with diverse experiences in the study and treatment of self-injury. Just what did Caroline find? Turns out, a lot. Much of what she'll be sharing in today's episode. Caroline Roberts is a PhD candidate in educational psychology at the University of Minnesota and an interdisciplinary doctoral fellow at the Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain. Her research focuses on interdisciplinary approaches to the study of self-injury, especially for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Thank you for being a part of the podcast, Caroline. Thanks for having me. How did you become interested in researching self-injury, and especially among individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities? Yeah, for me, I grew up with it. It's been a part of my life as long as I can remember. My brother, Benjamin, was born when I was three. And he has a genetic syndrome resulting in a lot of disabilities. And for him, his biggest challenge has been self-injury since he was three. He started by poking his eyes, scratching his eyes, and he's 26 now. And he hits himself and has for a long time. And that's really caused immense stress and challenge for my family. And so I find it very meaningful to be able to be a part of this research and to hopefully help identify ways to support families like mine. 
If we can start basic, can you explain or define what we mean or what you mean by self-injurious behavior in intellectual and developmental disabilities and how it's similar to and different from non-suicidal self-injury? Absolutely, yeah. When someone has an intellectual and developmental disability, we tend to refer to self-injury in this category of challenging behavior. We talk about it as SIB, self-injurious behavior. You'll hear me refer to it as SIB rather than NSSI. And there's differences in how the behavior usually presents, how we tend to frame it and talk about it. SIB tends to be a restricted, repetitive behavior with greater frequency, more variability in intensity than NSSI. And we see different topographies like headbanging, hitting oneself with or without objects, eye poking, biting, or skin picking. There's different challenges in clinical care. NSSI, many of your listeners probably are familiar with how it is often secretive or concealed. We don't see that in SIB. Usually it's an apparent behavior. The challenge we do often face is with self-report. Many individuals who have severe intellectual disabilities also have complex communication challenges and maybe nonverbal, and you're not able to ask someone, how are you feeling? Why are you doing this? So that is a major challenge in clinical care. Those are primary differences, but it's my belief that these behaviors are more similar than they are different. I think we have a tendency to overemphasize the differences between them, but really they are both self-injury. They're both inflicting tissue damage to yourself. They both can involve internal or external functions like communication or coping with intense emotions. They both emerge from a combination of genetic and environmental factors. And I think that even when, for example, someone's not able to articulate their emotion, that doesn't mean there isn't an emotion regulation function going on, for example, but we might not necessarily focus on that in clinical care. So that really can change the way that we think about each behavior. I think they both need complex assessment intervention, and that interdisciplinary support can really help us address biological, psychological, and behavioral needs. I know even from my own experience working with young people who self-injure and also young people with intellectual disabilities or those with autism spectrum disorders, I often do, at least in presentations, distinguish non-suicidal self-injury from stereotypic repetitive self-injurious behaviors like you referenced earlier. But I also know that individuals with intellectual disabilities can also engage in NSSI. Autistic people can engage in NSSI and SIB. Yeah, there is that overlap, and then there's some differences like you're saying. And you presented on this at our IEEE's conference a few months ago in Vienna, Austria. It was really well received by everyone there. I think everyone was really excited to hear you talk because there's not a whole lot of overlap that people focus on. So this is kind of a newer area, interestingly. So historically, self-injurious behavior, or SIB, and NSSI have been studied and treated separately. So here you are, though, bridging this divide. What are some of the issues with studying and treating them separately? Yeah, I I think it's a great question. And I think that the history of studying and treating NSSI and SIB separately has ultimately created a context that it causes us to sometimes have biased thinking, um, especially with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. We have a context of exclusion, exclusion in mental health spaces in particular. 
because we're treating them separately over time, we've developed really different ways of thinking about each behavior. For example, in NSSI, our research and our treatment tends to focus on psychological and developmental perspectives. NSSI is usually understood as emotion regulation or a coping mechanism, and we think about it in a developmental context. We're thinking about that adolescent's family, their caregivers, if they've had trauma exposure, their peer context. And these are things that we don't really think about with SIB. When we study and treat SIB, there tends to be more of a behavioral psychology approach. We focus more on external functions, like social contingencies, how the behavior is being reinforced. There's very little emphasis on developmental context or emotion, even though that's a lot of the emphasis in NSSI. And so we don't know much about SIB in terms of family or attachment, even though it's clear that those play an immense role in NSSI. And I think on the flip side, there's also ways that on the NSSI side, there can be tools from the SIB side or behavioral psychology approaches that can benefit treatment for NSSI. One example that I heard a lot when I was conducting focus groups was the need for adaptive interventions. Clinicians are seeing autistic individuals, neurodiverse individuals in their clinics and don't feel like they have the right support, the right tools. One example was dialectical behavior therapy approaches that are adapted for autistic clients. So there might be ways that those treatment practices can be informed from SIB and in order to adapt it for NSSI and neurodiverse populations. And because of that context of exclusion, we haven't had those conversations. We haven't made those adaptations. We haven't had collaborative research like this. And I think there's a lot of ways that we have existing knowledge, existing tools that are just on the other side of that disciplinary silo that we may be able to apply in really new, innovative ways. Can you give a few examples of what would be considered SIB and what might be considered NSSI? And could you talk a little bit about how treatment for SIB is typically done, like what a therapeutic intervention might look like? I think when we think of NSSI, we often think of behaviors like cutting, burning. And with SIB, we're talking more about behaviors like headbanging or biting. There is a still a variety of topographies. And with some genetic syndromes, we see certain associated topographies. There's a handful of rare genetic syndromes that are associated with self-injury, like Prader-Willi syndrome, for example, you see skin picking, or Rett syndrome, you see hand wringing or mouthing. And then there's a high prevalence in autism, about 42% in autism. And the more severe the intellectual disability in general, the the more likely it is that someone will engage in self-injury. But these are repetitive behaviors, like hitting your head against a wall, for example. What does treatment typically look like? So typically, you have approaches from behavioral psychology. Usually, this is happening in a special education context or applied behavior analysis context. So ABA, applied behavior analysis, is the usual approach. You'd be working with a behavior therapist with a typically a high dosage, sometimes 40 hours a week that a kid is working one-on-one with a therapist, thinking about behavioral contingencies for reinforcement. What is maintaining that behavior and how can we shift those reinforcement contexts? And first you would you would conduct something like a functional behavior analysis or assessment to determine 
the maintenance of that behavior. And what would be some examples of the intervention piece there, like the functional analysis? How would they stop maybe someone from engaging in SIB? If the results of your analysis determined, for example, that the behavior had a social function for that individual, maybe they are nonverbal and don't have other ways to communicate, but if they start hitting their face, then a caregiver comes over and gives them attention. So your intervention would be a way for them to ask for attention, get attention without having to engage in the behavior. And the functional behavioral analysis is actually really similar to what we would do with NSSI as well. In fact, we had Dr. Peggy Andover talk about TSIB, the treatment for self-injurious behaviors, in which the focus is looking at the function of the behavior, the antecedents, what happens before the actual behavior, and then the consequences and the reinforcers. So it's very similar and appropriately named. Mm -hmm. You've done some research on the experiences of family caregivers of individuals with severe intellectual and developmental disabilities trying to access treatment. What were some of your key findings and how are they relevant to research on and access to treatment for NSSI? I interviewed family caregivers who are caring for individuals who have entrenched severe self-injury and intellectual disability. And I specifically was asking them about how they access care, how they interact with providers to get that care. And what we heard is that it was really challenging. We heard from caregivers that the process of acquiring care was very caregiver-driven, They really had that responsibility, particularly the mothers tended to be the primary caregivers who were continually seeking care, needing to follow up. And all of this is happening in a context where they're exhausted from coping with the behavior. They finally decided it's time to seek help from outside the family and then have this additional responsibility. We also heard that the relationship between the provider and the caregiver was really important, both positively and negatively. We heard from caregivers who said that I really connected with this doctor. I felt really understood. And that positive relationship was not so much about they have this special expertise. It was more about feeling listened to and understood. And on the flip side, lots of interactions with really dismissive doctors who they didn't feel heard them or believed them. And We had a whole theme around beliefs, around how the ways that you perceive self-injury and some of its ambiguities can inform treatment access. Particularly in intellectual disability, it's not always clear what is self-injurious behavior in a context where restricted repetitive behaviors is part of the diagnostic criteria for autism those are sometimes self-directed, it's not often clear what is a dangerous behavior or has the potential to become a dangerous behavior. And so what we hear is understanding what is self-injurious and what needs treatment can be really ambiguous. And so that match between the caregiver's belief and the provider's belief was really important for treatment access. We also heard that providers simply didn't have the knowledge to provide care. They didn't know treatment options or they didn't have case knowledge about that individual. It's sometimes hard to do that in a 20-minute appointment. And so what happened more often than not is families ended up waiting until a crisis, until there was a severe injury, there was hospitalization, even the involvement of law enforcement. And so they get stuck in this process of trying to acquire care. And there might be short-term interventions like emergency room visits in a crisis situation, but 
what we would hear from older caregivers of adult children who still had self-injury is that they just got burned out and they just resigned themselves to managing the behavior rather than trying new treatment options or trying new providers because it was just exhausting. And as far as your, your second question about how this relates to NSSI, I think we're facing a lot of similar challenges with access to care in particular. I think one quote that I always come back to from one of my focus groups was, we converge right now in emergency departments. I think that's very true, unfortunately. I think that when you're in that crisis situation, it doesn't matter anymore whether you're classifying your behavior as SIB or NSSI. What matters is the care and the support for that person and their family. And right now we have a crisis in our care system where it's a very reactive system. It's not proactive. We have very little prevention or early intervention. And I think there's a number of ways that building a proactive care system can benefit from thinking about both SIB and NSSI and taking a more interdisciplinary approach. One example that comes to mind is our workforce. I think we have a lot of challenges in our workforce right now in terms of a lack of providers who are equipped to deal with self-injury, to treat it in terms of burnout and insufficient training, and that there are ways that we can support our workforce better to treat self-injury or to refer to the right people for self-injury, especially at the first line of defense, the frontline responders, primary care providers, pediatricians, and that that kind of support is going to help us move beyond crisis management toward prevention and early intervention. And we're going to need cross-disciplinary training. We're going to need interdisciplinary support to do that. What would some of that training look like for physicians, like primary care physicians, when they see SIB in particular? Yeah, I think a big one that comes to mind is this idea of diagnostic overshadowing, which means that there's a tendency when someone has a disability to focus on that disability and to attribute things to it that aren't necessarily part of the disability. We heard from some family caregivers who said that providers would say, oh, that's just what autism is. That's just part of their autism. That's part of their disability. When the reality is, it's not. And there is support for these behaviors and ways that a provider could better understand what developmental disability means or intellectual disability that would help them distinguish self-injury when they when they see it or understand what self-injurious behavior is or what risk for self-injury looks like. I do a lot of the a lot of training of pediatricians when it comes to assessing and responding to NSSI, but I haven't talked about intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities in SIB and how to respond to that. Because I'm thinking your comment about converging in the emergency departments where they kind of overlap the NSSI and SIB. But at the same time for SIB, it seems that it's at that point that it's crisis mode. I know a, a lot of young people who engage in NSSI might have parents, caregivers, or teachers respond as if it were a crisis when it wasn't. On the flip side, for SIB, it's a crisis, and they're not getting that until it's really, really severe. And I don't know if that's the diagnostic overshadowing even beyond the primary care physician office. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. And maybe a point of divergence is that you have a tendency to wait until crisis in SIB and let it escalate. And it sounds like in NSSI, sometimes you're, you're responding really strongly before it's escalated. Yeah, just thinking about that. 
And my next question kind of goes on to your focus groups that you were alluding to earlier that you invited me to be a part of it. I'm sorry, I just wasn't able to be a part of it. So <laughs> I guess that comment I just made might have been helpful for that. Mm-hmm. This qualitative research that you've done recently with the focus groups with researchers and clinicians in hearing their perspective on the differences and similarities between SIB and NSSI, what did you find in terms of how they can learn from each other and collaborate? We have really rich data, so I found a lot, and I'll try not to speak for hours, but we ended up categorizing our data from these focus groups into four main topic areas. So we talked about case ascertainment, how you identify a case of self-injury, and especially how you define SIG or NSSI. And we talked about perceptions of causal variables, so the beliefs that researchers and clinicians have about what causes self-injury. We also talked about families and individuals' access to treatment, building off of those interviews, and about the goals of treatment. And we had a number of themes in each of those categories. With case ascertainment, one that I found particularly interesting was the gray areas. A lot of participants brought up that there are populations or behaviors that don't fit neatly into SIB or NSSI. They were seeing them in clinical settings or in research settings and didn't necessarily know how to classify them. And I think this is a point at which that dichotomy kind of starts to break down. Some examples were autistic individuals who don't have a co-occurring intellectual disability or unusual topographies. Like I, I had a participant who studies a rare disease where kids have collision behaviors. They run into walls at full force. And that population, that community doesn't necessarily identify that as self-injury, but it could fit the definition. So maybe that's a a gray area. We also had gray areas in terms of early developmentally appropriate kinds of behaviors. In toddlers, you see self-directed repetitive behaviors in typical development. And it's not clear in someone who has an intellectual or developmental disability if that is part of a trajectory toward self-injury or what that looks like. I'm thinking about the recent episode we did on self-harm OCD versus non-suicidal self-injury, which self-harm in the form of having significantly intrusive thoughts about hurting oneself non-suicidally but never having engaged in the behavior exists. But it can be really hard when there's an overlap with actual engagement in non-suicidal self-injury. So someone might have self-harm OCD and engage and non-suicidal self-injury. It's really rare. I've had some experiences in that area, which is why I know now how rare it is. It's more rare than, I guess, the overlap that we might see with SIB and NSSI, because I've also worked with people who have intellectual developmental disabilities who engage in both stereotypic repetitive self-injurious behaviors and have carved or cut words into their skin in a non-suicidal self-injury way. So I, I can see that there's overlapping gray areas. And even to the example that you gave about the genetic condition in which people might have these self-harm type collision behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the OCD point also came up as a gray area. I had people in my focus groups talking about trichotillomania and dermatillomania in particular, and some people were really adamant that that is not self-injury, while others included it in their definition, which just was a major common theme in the case ascertainment category is that we're just using different criteria and when we talk about self-injury. 
I think those are typically considered the impulsive type diagnoses, mm. uh, the trichotillomania, hair pulling, where oftentimes it's without the person's conscious awareness. So the intent of harm is not there. Same thing with the dermatillomania, picking at the skin or skin picking disorder, where the person might be doing it without consciously doing that or intentionally causing harm, but it is causing tissue damage in both areas. So I think that's where also we have these conversations at IISSS about if we have an NSSI disorder, which is in the current DSM-5 as a proposed diagnosis for future research and future study, under which category in the DSM should that fall? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you use the word intentionality. Um, because that was also a point of contention for people <laughs> because on the SIP side, when you're talking about someone who they don't have self-report, you don't use the word intentionality. That would be an inference that you can't make without mm. self-report. You focus only on observable variables. Yeah, I remember reading in that in your paper that for those that are nonverbal, how can you determine intent? Yeah. And the short answer is you can't. A point of convergence that was very clear in our perceptions of cause category was the idea that cause is complex. We don't have a simple answer, and everybody had consensus around that. It's something that's multi-causal. It's individualized. Context is really important. That seemed to be clear on both the SIB and NSSI side. But a point of divergence in that category was the way that our disciplinary frames cause these implicit assumptions or defaults about what we are considering when we think about cause or we assess cause. I found that, very generally speaking, NSSI professionals tended to default more to thinking about internal function, thinking about emotion or attachment, for example, or trauma. And in SIB professionals, there tended to be more of a default to external functions. I have some quotes I can read if you would like. <laughs> I love to bring quotes into my work because I often find that the participant says it better than I could. So this is a, a quote from a psychologist and then a quote from a behavior analyst when asked about cause, where you can hear the difference in how they think about it. So this is the psychologist, quote, a difference in the ability to regulate emotions in response to certain stimuli that have been previously due to difficulties in attachment and sensitized. Or when you ask a behavior analyst about cause, quote, in our field, it's pretty clear that those environmental contingencies are what maintains the behavior for a lot of people. I think these are good examples of kind of the default disciplinary frames that we have coming out of each field. Another sub-theme that you had in the category of perceptions of causal variables was related to timeline framing. Can you talk about the differences and similarities of SIB and NSSI in regards to changes across time? Yes. So we had another theme under our perceptions of causal variables category that we called timeline framing. What we found is that both SIB and NSSI researchers and clinicians agree that self-injury changes across time and it can differ why it begins and why it continues, the onset versus the maintenance in, in research terms. However, there was a tendency to conceptualize the development of self-injury differently and to talk about different variables as relevant to that change across time. In SIB, onset is typically talked about in terms of developmentally appropriate proto-SIB in early childhood. So by that, I mean when you have a toddler who is hitting themselves against the crib or tapping their foot or any of those kind of repetitive behaviors that are self-directed and that are common and typical in development, but over time, 
could develop into something more dangerous. In NSSI, onset is typically conceptualized with accidental injury or pure contagion in adolescence, a little bit later in development. And in SIB, when we talk about entrenchment or when the behavior really becomes part of that behavioral repertoire over time, we're talking about that in terms of behavioral shaping or sometimes impulsivity. And in NSSI, when we talk about entrenchment, we're usually talking about it in terms of more of an addiction model and using those words. So we also have this really important distinction in terms of the role of suicide, suicidality and acquired capability for suicide and how that is relevant across time. So I know there's there's a distinction in NSSI that NSSI is non-suicidal self-injury, distinct from suicidal ideation. And I found in my focus groups that there was inconsistency in the role of suicidality. Some of the people I talked to believe that NSSI represents an acquired capability that you are then more likely to engage in suicidal behavior. While other people I talked to said that NSSI is the opposite. NSSI is something that allows you to regulate your emotions so that you don't then engage in suicidal behavior. And we don't talk about suicidality in SIB. It's not part of the equation, which I think is a really important distinction and something that is very relevant to thinking about the course of the behavior across time. I'm glad you brought that up. Why is that? Why is there no discussion of suicide or acquired capability for suicide in SIB? I think that's a really good question. And I don't have an answer. I think there's a lot of things that I've asked myself as I do this research. Why aren't we talking about this? And that's one of them. It might be in the same category of thinking about trauma exposure. We do have research knowing that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are more likely than the general population to be exposed to trauma. And yet we haven't really incorporated trauma exposure into our study of self-injury. And I think suicidality might be in that same category of topics that are really an, an integral part of NSSI and that conversation and that research that just haven't been incorporated into the SIB literature. That is surprising to me because I know that trauma itself is what we would consider a painful and provocative experience that would lead to increase in one's capability to attempt suicide should they have suicidal thoughts or a suicide desire. Individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities are at heightened risk for trauma and experience that. So many of them will have that experience that would increase that capability for attempting suicide should they have thoughts of suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I will go ahead and, and state the obvious answer, which is we don't have self-report. Yeah, We don't have words in many of these cases, not all of them. And so I think that's probably probably a primary reason we haven't talked about these things is that it's just really hard. How do you assess exposure to trauma or the impact of something like that in someone who is nonverbal? It's really hard. And I'm not trying to diminish the challenge of that, but I am trying to push the boundary of even if someone can't tell you, can't articulate it, that doesn't mean that as a clinician or a researcher, you shouldn't be thinking about these internal functions and these variables. Or even if they are verbal, but have an intellectual disability and just yeah. don't have the vocabulary as well to describe their experience. I, I think there is a risk where even when we, I know this, we're talking specifically about self-injurious behavior and non-suicidal self-injury, but even with suicide and suicide attempts, sometimes an individual might overestimate the likelihood of a behavior in causing death. 
But then there's some that might underestimate the lethality of a method that they choose, even if they're engaging in non-suicidal self-injury, the intent is not to die, but maybe there is either the lack of insight or underestimation of its severity. Yeah. And I think you're touching on a really important point here too, which is, I think the role of self-report could be examined in NSSI too, because even when you are verbal and you do have the ability to articulate what you're feeling, How much do we really understand why we do the things we do, right? (laughs) I think people have a really hard time talking about that, especially when they're having an emotional psychological crisis. So maybe there's, there's room for reassessing that in NSSI as well. I like that point because when I talk to parents, I do a lot of presentations as well as in my clinical work talking to parents who just really struggle to understand non-suicidal self-injury and how their child might have difficulty stopping. Obviously, if they if it was an easy thing to stop, they would have already stopped. But one way to build empathy for their child is basically exactly what you said is sometimes we don't know exactly why we do things, even though behaviors serve a function. Sometimes it's out of our conscious awareness and how many times have we ourselves done things that we know we're not in our best interest, yet we did them anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> Sometimes that can be NSSI too. Yeah. I can also talk about our category around pathways to treatment, which we started talking about with the interviews. But something that was really clear in our focus groups was the ways that people with intellectual disabilities are explicitly or implicitly being excluded from the mental health care system. We heard this explicitly in terms of clinics that turn away people with IDD, but more implicitly, it also happens with lack of accommodation or lack of modified treatment protocols. Well, even if you can find a mental health group or a mental health treatment process that's happening, will your clients with an intellectual or cognitive delay be eligible to participate in the same way? Or will they be kind of facing that bias or that stigma right at the door and not even be able to get their feet on the ground floor? And finally, I can also talk about our treatment goals category. In our category of treatment goals, we had a really interesting convergence or parallel, maybe as a more appropriate word, in terms of the role of autonomy in treatment. If you think about the typical populations that engage in SIB or NSSI, we're talking about individuals with disabilities, intellectual disabilities, and we're talking about teenagers. And these are both populations that tend to lack a lot of control or autonomy in their lives. And we saw this interesting parallel coming through in our focus groups about the role of supporting that autonomy and giving patients control and choice in their treatment. And in NSSI, we see this coming through in discussion about bodily autonomy or the right for treatment refusal. I have a quote here that I think describes this really well. Quote, we have a group who says we should change the stigma, not the behavior. If I can do multiple piercings or tattoos, body art, why can't I have burns and cuts and bruises? And I see a lot of parallels here with a conversation happening on the SIB side around the role of applied behavior analysis or ABA. There's a lot of conversation, especially in autistic communities, about the ethics of ABA and how to use ABA in an ethical way. And I think that there's similar themes happening in terms of the rights of individuals to have autonomy and control over what treatment is and what kind of behaviors they want to engage in and have a right to engage in. 
quote, the campaign by autistic people to make behavior analysts stop trying to get them to stop engaging in self-regulatory or self-stimulatory behavior. And this points to another really important belief or ambiguity about what self-injury is, is that line between a self-stimulatory or self-regulatory behavior, in the words of this participant, and something that is dangerous, something that is in need of treatment. Is there any resolution to this? I think it's an ongoing debate and conversation that's happening in both fields, and I don't think there is yet resolution, no. The quote that you read about the self-injurious behavior in autonomy to self-regulate through self-stimulatory behavior, I think about people who don't have intellectual developmental disabilities and who might hit themselves repetitively, almost in a very similar way to stimulate themselves. And whether we see that like on the football field to get pumped up or in some other area, it seems to be culturally accepted to an extent. And people may not see that as even NSSI. So it's an interesting comment from that participant. I could see a little bit of an argument for that. Yeah. And this is a point I think your comment reminds me of the idea of cultural relativism, which comes from anthropology and which I also find could really be explored in this area as well, because what we think of as self-injurious is going to be entirely dependent on your cultural context, right? Someone hitting themselves on the football field in one culture is going to look very different in another setting. And really, all of it is dependent on your lens. In addition to the autonomy in treatment, you also mentioned quality of life. Can you talk a little bit about that? I thought that was really interesting. Sure. So quality of life was another theme out of our treatment goals category. This was coming from a conversation that was that was happening around the role of harm reduction. So we had a, another theme that was about whether you believe the goal of treatment is to eliminate the behavior or whether the goal is to reduce harm. And for participants who really aligned more with the reducing harm side of that conversation, there was more of a movement toward understanding the goal of treatment as improving quality of life rather than eliminating the behavior. And this was understood broadly as ensuring safety, providing relief to caregivers, incorporating what we call wraparound care in disability services, which refers to having care that is person-centered and incorporating multiple different elements in that person's life. And this was coming up on both the SIB side and the NSSI side. Quote, it comes back to that quality of life thing. Can you live well with a mental health condition? And I believe that people can live well. We don't need to cure people. But what would be really nice is to make sure everyone is being able to do what they want to do, rather than being a horrible situation where actually someone's life is taken too early. That quote's from the NSSI side, but a similar one from the SIB side, quote, in IDD, self-injury predicts placement breakdown, lack of access to the community, lack of education access, and increasing restrictive practices, pharmacology. And actually, I guess the goal is, yes, we want to reduce self-injury, but it's so you can have access to all of these things in your life and live a life that is absolutely your potential, that has all of the access to community that you deserve. I think these are really nice ideas, but I also want to point out that there were some challenges with this idea. When we talk about quality of life, it's unclear who decides what that means. What is safe? What defines a high quality of life? How do we measure these things? There's still some unanswered questions there. 
From the NSSI perspective, I'm reminded of the person-centered framework for NSSI that Dr. Stephen Lewis and Dr. Penny Haskin had presented and talked about in a recent podcast episode here, where recovery, for some people, the quality of life, even if they're not self-injuring, they're still experiencing urges, and that's distressing, and in their mind, they may not see that as recovered. Quality of life for them might not be as high as they would like it to be, where they to not experience as many urges. So even without the behavior, absence of the behavior doesn't necessarily equate to the presence of high quality life or wellness. But that also means that someone can engage in NSSI and still have overall good quality of life. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's complex and something that's probably relative to every person. So overall, to summarize, how can we bridge the gap between NSSI research and clinical practice and self-injurious behavior in intellectual and developmental disabilities? I think that's a really big question. (laughs) I think that's a question I'm going to be working on probably for many years to come. There's big systemic changes we can make. I think there are ways that our systems of care can be changed to better support that interdisciplinary work. In the U.S., I think we need insurance changes in the way we fund care or state changes. I also think there are small changes we can make in terms of our attitudes, our beliefs at the provider level. I'm thinking in particular both researchers and clinicians. I think a first step to bridging this gap is reflection. I really like to use reflexivity in my research. I think it's really useful, especially as someone who has lived experience in their research area. And if we can stop and think about the assumptions that our disciplines hold or the ways we were trained and how that training has really shaped our belief, the systems we're working in, I think that can help us begin to think about why we make the choices we make in our research and our practice, and if we have a good reason for them. One example that has come up is if you're a researcher conducting NSSI research, you might have exclusion criteria. Who do you include in your studies? And I've heard that sometimes exclusion criteria includes people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. There might be a really good reason for that, but there also might not be. It might just be there. So critically thinking about some of those choices On the clinical side, if you're someone who's providing treatment for someone with IDD who self-injures, have you asked about their family context? Have you thought about their emotional states? Doing some of that reflection, I think, could be really helpful and be a small way to start to bridge the gaps. If you're a primary care provider, what do you believe about what disability means? What do you think autism means? And that's a hard question in and of itself because autism means something different for every person. But just beginning to think about that, beginning to think critically about the scenarios you're in as a researcher and a clinician, I think can help us identify ways that we can collaborate, points of convergence. I think it's going to require a lot of listening, a lot of examination, a lot of innovation. But ultimately, I do see this as a social justice endeavor. I think that inclusion for people with disabilities in all spaces, includes research and practice in self-injury. And when you have an intellectual or developmental disability, sometimes that means you need something different than someone who doesn't. But if we start from the same place, then we can be thinking about people with intellectual and developmental disabilities as people first, who have emotions, just like people who don't have IDDs, and who may struggle with mental health difficulties, just like people who are engaging in NSSI. I think that is an important role for this work. Excellent. So what's next for you? 
I have a lot of analysis to do. <laughs> I'm working on my dissertation. One of the analyses we're doing right now is really broadly thinking about the role of interdisciplinary work and trying to have some really actionable strategies to how to support this. So if you ask me in a few months what that last question, how we bridge the gap, I might have even more ideas. But what's next for me is a lot of writing, a lot of thinking, and continuing this work. That's great. And I think I could probably learn something from that in terms of bringing it to bridging the gap of NSSI knowledge and clinical work with pediatricians and physicians, being able to work interdisciplinary and how I might improve that and how we educate them and work together with them. I think that would be great. I think that's a really important point that we need to work on. Based on our conversation today about NSSI and SIB in IDD, what would you recommend to parents? I would recommend to parents, particularly of a a child or an adult who has a disability or is neurodiverse, I want them to know that if their child is self-injuring, they are not the only ones in the world experiencing this. I think that has sometimes been what it feels like for my family. And I want them to know that they're, they're not alone in coping with this and that there are people who really want to support you. There are a lot of great providers out there who just maybe need some more training or some more support themselves to be able to help you. So I, I want parents to know that there's hope and that I have a lot of ideas and I'm working on it. What would you recommend to professionals, clinicians, researchers? Yeah, I think I, I've spoken already a bit to professionals in terms of this idea of reflection. I would encourage professionals to be open-minded, to have a reflexive positionality in terms of thinking about why they make the choices that they do. I think there's a lot of wonderful people in this field and that if we're open to new approaches, new perspectives, new ways of thinking, there's a lot we can achieve with the knowledge we already have, the existing knowledge that we just need to share in new ways or explore in new ways. And I appreciate that as well, because you've challenged me when I heard you present at ISSS to keep my mind open, not only with NSSI, but other areas. For instance, we're starting a social anxiety disorder group therapy, short intervention, that's not specifically for the social skills that many might use for a social skills group for autistic people. But I don't want to exclude them. Because mm-hmm. hearing you present, I want to be able to include them in a way that they can benefit, whereas other people can also benefit with skills and be able to practice. So that has been something that has really challenged me to be inclusive in that way that I might not have thought of had I not heard you present. So I'm really glad to hear that. And I, I know that makes things more challenging to run a program, too. So I'm glad you're willing to take that on in the spirit of inclusivity. Finally, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury, whether SIB or NSSI or both? I actually want to pull from someone else's words for this, this final conclusion. I have a quote that I really like from our participants that I often come back to when I think about this. Quote, it's not a clean answer. It's not a step by step. It's a complex answer. And I think that complex challenges require complex solutions. It's a way of honoring the lived reality of an individual. So my, my message to people with lived experience is that I'm working on a complex solution and I'm trying to honor that lived reality. That is great. That's a great way to end our conversation. Thank you for bringing attention to a topic that many have not thought of or when we have, we've seen them, we've seen them as silos separate. And here you are bridging that gap. 
I can't wait to see where you end up, where you go, and be able to soon call you Dr. Roberts whenever you <laughs> graduate, finish that dissertation, and, and go on to do great things. So thanks for being a part of the podcast on this topic. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a really great experience, and I, I hope to see you at the next IS conference. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful and would like to give back, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to interact with us, we welcome you to respond to our questions and polls under each episode in Spotify. This podcast is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.